Why haven't you seen the gold Why haven't you seen Psycho? Hello and welcome to another episode of FilmWise, also known as the Why Haven't You Seen This Film podcast, where on this episode we take a look at a couple different movies, a uh, film that my guest has offered me to watch that I had never seen, and in return I offer him a superhero movie that he has never seen, and today my guest is Ryan McNeil from The Matinee. How are you doing today? I am doing well. How are you doing, sir? I am doing pretty good. And before we get into things, uh, why don't you go ahead and just take a quick minute and uh, let everybody know uh, where they can find you online. Before you said online, I was going to say, well, you mean like where around my city (laughs) they can find me? Like for the guy in the cap and the doofy headphones. Uh, they can find me online at my website, which is thematinee.ca. Uh, I've been writing about uh, my film passion um, in all respects uh, since about 2007. Uh, and as I said, that's at thematinee.ca. And I, there's a post that goes up pretty much every day, although right this moment I have no idea what's going up tomorrow. Uh, they can also find me in audio form. Um, there has been a podcast offshoot from the site called the matinee cast and they can find that in all the normal uh, outlets dropping just about every other week where we tackle uh, a new release and marry it up with some uh, some further viewing suggestions uh, along with some discussion about my guests love of film and their history in film going yeah and um i've been a, a listener of the podcast for a while now and uh and I mentioned it the the last time that you came on that uh, that your podcast that the format specifically was one of the things that that inspired the format of this show, um, and this is the fiftieth episode of FilmWise, not counting any of my uh, twenty five or so uh, extra episodes that that I've uh, published. But it's a nice little milestone for me, and that was uh, there was a couple of reasons why I wanted to have you on uh, again for this, and that was one of them. And and another one is uh, even though I do I always tackle a film that I have never seen before on these episodes, they really vary in in their in terms of their um, uh, their status. Uh, like I I don't just only tackle classics i also tackle some more recent films and like uh, 80s action movies and and cult films and and i really enjoy that variety but it it feels like it's been a little while since i've kind of uh, gotten to a heavy hitter uh, (laughs) if if you want to call it that and uh and i remember whenever i was on your show uh whenever we talked about guardians of the galaxy and you asked me the question at the time what was my biggest blind spot at the moment and I said Psycho, and you said, "Well, if uh, nobody chooses that, uh, then you will come on the show and uh, and have me watch that uh, sometime in the future." So that was one reason that that I wanted to have you back on for the fiftieth episode to I love cover. It. I love it when a plan comes together <laughs> uh, to cover Psycho. Um, but I do always ask the guests some movie-related questions, and I had you on um, a while back. Uh, and 
um, the three films that you had never or that you had seen the most often that's a very different case uh, is The Wizard of Oz Top Gun and It's a Wonderful Life your favorite film that you had only seen once is Requiem for a Dream uh, if you were to focus on a narrow niche of films to to blog about or podcast about or whatever, it would be music films, uh, not musicals, but films specifically about music. Your favorite superhero movie was The Dark Knight, and your biggest film-wise at the time was The African Queen, uh, which you said you were going to be watching that year, and, and uh, if I had to guess, you did get around to that one, right? I did, yeah. It was a blind spot last year in August or September, I think, um, and it was it was a lot of fun to, to actually watch. And uh, I still don't have a, a good set of questions for second-time guests, but uh, there is one that I do definitely want to ask you um, before we get into uh, an announcement that I, that I actually have, and that is, what is your favorite comic book movie? Uh, I know that your favorite superhero movie is The Dark Knight, but if you take a look at the, the comic book films that are not specifically superheroes, because that is a very different genre. It is, and in a lot of ways, I, I find it far more fascinating because it translates over from one medium to the next um, so elegantly in some in some respects, and lends itself to some really really creative flourishes. And it's really kind of cool to see how some of these stories can come to life. And uh, you know, I, I count myself as a big big fan of movies like Ghost World and Road to Perdition and um, Easter or not Eastern Promises, uh, The History of Violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the one that stands above for me, the one that, that really actually, if somebody were to ask me, is the best comic book movie, even including superhero movies, believe it or not, um, would be American Splendor um, for the way that it incorporated the actual subject and the comic book and turned itself into a film, how it was kind of a documentary, but at the same time, not really a documentary and just moved throughout all of these ideas. So beautifully. I remember just having this gigantic grin on my face when I watched this movie uh, in a theater in 2003 and the movie basically stopped at the end of its first act and all of the characters just kind of walked off the set and into uh, a sit down with Harvey Picar, who's, who's the, the central character in the movie and the comic and, and Harvey himself is there. Um, and it's, it's such a cool watch. Paul Giamatti is amazing in it. Hope Davis is amazing in it. Harvey Picar himself is such an odd duck. And I love this movie to death. Nice. And, and, for someone who has watched a ton of comic book and superhero movies, that is one on my ever-increasingly short list that uh, that I have not seen yet. But I'm, I've heard a lot of good things about it, and I'm really looking forward to seeing it. I, I would say my, my top two that I haven't seen yet, um, as far as comic book movies go, is that one and Road to Pedro- Road to Perdition, mm-hmm. which I will actually be watching next week. Um, for my graphic horror march it's not really horror but it is a thriller so that's kind of thrown in there yeah i I will definitely be curious to know what you think of this movie like even after i've just praised it to the hills (laughs) um it's 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 really a film unlike any other in the genre nice and and that's that's one thing that i really love about um 
comic book movies that aren't superhero movies because there's so many like critically praised comic book films and a lot of them the the general audience might not realize that it actually is based on a comic book yeah like you know this is coming from i've been doing a lot of reading this year in general and i've been peppering some comics and graphic novels into the mix and just a few weeks ago for instance i finally read black hole for the first time and i remember going through it and thinking to myself how would anybody ever make this into a film because it's so uh subtle and so odd and i don't know if, if there's actually a movie here but um i'd be i'd certainly be curious to see somebody try <laughs> yeah i'm i'm not familiar with that one but uh I, I've there's just so many comics out there that oh, yeah. and and on such a wide variety of genres that it, it's it's really great to see. Yeah. Um, but I I do actually have a bit of an announcement here for the the 50th episode, and it's not that I'm not going to be closing film wise, but I am going to be taking a bit of an extended hiatus. Um, Right now, I'm just spread a little bit too thin on the blogging side of things. I've recently started a, a new site, ChannelSuperhero.com, and I'm really loving how that's that's turning out. It's been a lot of fun to not only take a look at uh, superhero TV, which which I have been doing, um, not nearly as much as superhero movies, but uh, especially in these past couple years, uh, this year and, and next year, this. Um, superhero TV is just absolutely exploding, and and it's been really fun to to take a look at that, and and also to actually run a site where I have a, a team of writers working with me to to put out daily content, um, and and we're currently covering all the primetime superhero shows on there, and we also have several people that are taking a look back at some classic superhero shows, and and we'll be doing a bit more of that in the summer whenever. Some more of the current shows uh, go on hiatus for the for the summer until the next fall season, and also uh, I've noticed that that because of that, my time to focus on flights, tights, and movie nights has uh, kind of suffered a little bit, and, and I'd like to really uh, get back into digging into some more of these uh, cult and obscure superhero films and and start working on on my film list and. Putting a little bit more focus on the site and the, this podcast has just kind of become the low man on the totem pole, uh, and it it does take a lot of time uh, watching two films. Uh, it's nice whenever I can watch a film that that I haven't already covered on my site, so I'm kind of killing two birds with one stone there. But uh, um, I do need to just take a break, and and hopefully it'll just be for a couple months, and then I will come back because I do really enjoy doing this podcast and it's not going to go, be going away forever but uh, I, I am taking a break and, and I might do a uh, an extra episode here and there if I can do an interview or if, or if a topic comes along that I want to talk about um, just in the short format but um, that's enough of that it's time to get on to the, the reason why I had you on here and that is to talk about the film that you had me watch for the first time, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. I feel like breaking all kinds of rules. Is anything wrong? I know some pretty strange women in my time. I think that... 
We're all in our private trap. What is it with you and women? She just goes a little mad sometimes. You found the breadcrumbs right to us. So, Psycho, for anybody who's never seen it, is the story of... Um, let me just get some character names up here. Is the story of Marion Crane. That's Janet Lee in the movie. And she, through a weird little set of circumstances, basically panics. Um, she's, a, she's a nice girl. She's uh, hanging around with, with, with a man who is not yet her, her husband or her actual boyfriend. He's not exactly uh, available. And when she wants to go and spend some time with him, she lies to her boss. She's got a lot of money in her wallet. She's not stealing it, but she just happens to walk away from her job with some very unusual circumstances. And when she walks away, she actually drives clear out of town and drives into this very ramshackle, isolated motel called the Bates Motel. And it's run by a guy named Norman, played iconically by Anthony Perkins, who's a loner, a very clean cut guy, the kind of guy you can imagine, like, you know, passing the collection basket at church, um, who seems to be completely off on an island unto himself, uh, with the exception of his very eccentric mother, who we hear but don't actually see in the early going. Uh, and before the first act is done, Marion Crane is viciously killed in this motel, um, which leaves a lot of people wondering what happened, a lot of people wondering who could have done it and uh, leaves Norman uh, himself panicking. And it's a really cool movie, an iconic movie by, uh, by uh, Alfred Hitchcock and a film that I always think of as a real gateway drug into classic film, into black and white film, and certainly into Hitchcock's movies. Yeah. And, and I will say that this is like the, I think third or fourth Hitchcock film that I've seen. Um, I know I watched Rope and uh, uh, North by Northwest and Vertigo, Vertigo and Rear Window. So, okay, uh, those are those are those are kind of the big ones. There's there's, right. there's a few more that we can get into, but certainly Vertigo, this one, Rear Window, and North by are certainly like the pillars where it comes to Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. And and of course, so I I knew quite a bit about this film before watching it although i was surprised by the the intro of the film because it like the the way that it's talked about how the the shower scene comes at the the end of the first act the the way that's that it's kind of talked about it makes it seem to an outside observer that that happens in like the first five or ten minutes uh, but it's it it doesn't come until like the first uh, 30 minutes in right so I was really not expecting all of that backstory with um, with Janet Lee's character mm-hmm. and the money. I, I had no idea about that, and and of course I did know that uh, Anthony Perkins, uh, Norman Bates's mother, was himself, and and she had been dead. I'd, I'd seen that the image of I don't think the image of him dressed as his mother, uh, unless it came from one of the sequels. But I had seen the the image of his uh, decaying mother, his uh, mummified okay. corpse, um, or her mummified corpse, that is. But yeah, I I really so I kind of knew what I was getting into to a certain extent. Um, I did enjoy the the whole uh, uh, thriller aspect of 
Janet Lee's character in in the first act of the film. It, it was a real pleasant surprise about her on the run from the cops and or her suspicion of the cops and how you think that or how she thinks that something's going to happen to her at any moment with this forty thousand dollars, which is the equivalent of about uh, three or three or four hundred thousand dollars in in today's money. Yeah, like to to put it into perspective, the reason why she had it was because. Uh, a, a man was buying a house for his daughter and her new husband. So in 1960 terms, 40000 in California would buy you a very nice spread. Uh, the the funny thing in the beginning is you kind of think that Marion Crane, the Janet Lee character, you kind of think that she's the one who's psycho because she's the one who's hearing voices in her head and playing over how events are going to go out and she's paranoid of cops that are following her and what her boss might be saying and what her boyfriend might be saying so in that first little intro you get this really really great uh setup of who she is why she's running how she happens to be out in this motel which i really liked like i i i've seen a lot of uh slasher movies or the the follow this kind of setup where we don't really know a whole lot about the final girl or the main victim besides the fact that they're you know they're they're pretty and they're clever i really liked learning a bit about marianne crane and why she happens to be out in this arizona motel in the middle of nowhere Mm -hmm. yeah and and it, it is a really skillful shift to see who the main character is because uh, really, through the, through the first act, you do think that that Janet Lee, uh, especially coming back, uh, looking at it backwards from maybe a more modern horror movie perspective, that Janet Lee uh, has this final girl aspect of her. Where in if she was in a, a modern horror movie with a, a group of other people and a psycho movie, she would be uh, the one that survives to the end. Well, that's how the movie is sold right like if you if you take a look at the poster she's the most prominent person uh, aside from like the word psycho like norman's on the cover and her boyfriend's on the cover uh, on on the poster i should say but she's by far the most prominent person she's bright yellow on the poster and she was handily the biggest star at the time so it's kind of like if you know we were to cast a movie right now with a bunch of lesser knowns and Sandra Bullock and Sandra Bullock dies before or Scarlett, top, Johansson. Before, or Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. Before you got to the bottom of your popcorn bucket, like fans of the movie would have been shocked that she's dead and gone. Like you say, it's, it's later than you think it's going to be because we we know mm-hmm. this scene is coming. So you yeah, know, it, it, it's it, almost, it's almost interesting coming at it from, uh, from the experience of uh, the scream franchise, because yeah. the, the scream does almost does pretty much the same thing where all the trailers are from the opening scene right. uh, and they get killed in, in the first five, 10 minutes. Right. So it, it's kind of like, Scream took this and really abbreviated it for for a modern audience, and but this is where that originated from. Yeah, and at the time, so that would have been shocking, not to mention, of course, there's the stories that go along with this movie that when it played, Hitchcock laid down rules that nobody was to be allowed entry once the film has began. Like the, the, He t- specifically told ticket sellers that as much as you want to let somebody walk in 30 minutes into this film or 10 minutes into this film, 
film. Uh-uh. When credits roll, that's it. Close the doors. Because they want people... They, they didn't want somebody to walk in and not be completely shocked and, and stunned by this act of violence. And they didn't want somebody not to care. They wanted that buildup. Um, and, and, and that experience with Janet Lee getting slashed uh, in, in the shower to play to full effect. And for Hitch, playing to full effect was you're going to watch this from the beginning whether you want to or not. Mm-hmm. Um, although I will say that as iconic as the shower scene is, uh, coming from a modern perspective, it's like most of it is excellent, but the fact that it's obviously there's no penetration with the knife is, is pretty obvious. Right, but your mind still fills that in, you know, like, regardless of the fact that we now have written thousands upon thousands of words about how we never see the knife actually do any cutting, the way that scene is cobbled together, uh, I wanted to use the term cut together, but I felt that that was a little (laughs) bit too obvious of a a pun. The way that 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 scene is stitched together, your mind is filling in a lot of blanks, and you're... I always like to use the term "he made you feel it." Uh, I know because because I know that you're you're watching a lot of comic book TV shows. I know I'm pretty sure you're watching Walking Dead, or somebody on your team is watching Walking Dead. Yeah, that uh, I've I've got someone uh, filling that in for me, Rachel Thoreau. Oh, cool. Oh, okay. Shit, I'm sure she's all over it. So <laughs> if you ask her, there was a, there was there's as we record uh, the the third from the last episode happened this past weekend, and there were two deaths in it, like only two human deaths. But in both cases, they made you feel these deaths. They weren't they were tragic and they were sad, but. Because we're now five years into this, um, they're beyond the point where they just want somebody to die gracefully. They want to really, really twist the knife in the audience's stomach. And I really feel like that was what Hitch did with this scene. Because first of all, he's, he's taking a moment where somebody is at their most vulnerable. They're absolutely most vulnerable in the shower where everybody, generally speaking, feels safe, even though, as I just said, they're incredibly vulnerable and he cobbled it together between seeing the flash of the knife against the light in the shower and seeing her scream and seeing what she was reaching for and at times how she was just grasping at nothing he taps into something deeper than just seeing the the actual blood or seeing somebody get carved up because as gross as that would be i don't think it would be as terrifying as the way this actually lands Mm mm-hmm uh, although I will kind of uh, just toss in another just slight wrench just to the fact for for me watching it, I, it did bother me like a little bit, just a little that uh, even even if you exclude the the whole penetration of the knife with the any visual effects, um, it, it did kind of make me laugh at a couple moments, and, and also with the the death of the private investigator a little bit later on in the movie where it just the the angles didn't line up for me like it it looked like it didn't look like the knife was going specifically to go into her or to to slice her in a meeting meaningful way it just kind of felt a little too stagey for me well i think part of that comes down to 
how we imagine the physics of actually stabbing a person. Now, I'm, I'm happy to report that I've never stabbed a person. <laughs> um, so I, I'm, I'm only here speaking from what I would have in my mind's eye. But it stands to reason that even if you surprise someone, unless you move really, really quickly, and the the killer in this movie does not always move all that quickly, although one time they move surprisingly surprisingly quickly the person's gonna move which i think is one of the reasons why in both cases it takes a couple swipes so if you imagine how you might go to stab somebody if you stab them in the back and you can just land it it's just going to be one hit and you're done but if they come in and even if they twist a twist can be just enough that you've got to take a few swipes at it that like you say it the motion's not gonna match for the way that you actually would want to stab a person. So it's going to look weird. But I think that that kind of plays with what he wanted to get across. And of course, we also have to remember that back in 1960, you really couldn't show what you can get away with showing now. Right. So Hitch had to be really creative. It's part of the reason why this movie is in black and white. He wanted to keep the bloodletting uh, down to the point where it would still give him the proper rating, uh, mm-hmm. not, to, not to mention the nudity and the, and the rest of the violence. But with all of that, uh, even though the, the nudity is very masterfully blocked in, in strategic places with with the uh, the way the shots are done. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I do see your point in the way that the actual angles and physics of these two stabbings that we see don't quite jive. That's usually where I just let my mind go. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. But it's. Like I said, it's just one of those just little minor things where everything else about the shot, and especially the the end with with the uh, the close up of the shower drain cutting to the eye, yeah, and uh, the slow tracking shot around the room, and another thing that I noticed, uh, especially whenever he comes in. Um, a little bit later to survey the scene, I, I noticed how the newspaper is always in frame. Yep, and you, and we know why that is, mm-hmm. which is to remind us that one one to remind us because what uh, Nathan's missing here is that the money, the forty thousand dollars that Marion Crane walked off with, is wrapped up in the newspaper. Right. And the re- so the reason why it's always in frame is to remind ourselves that never at any one time was this killing about the money. That the reason why Marion ran away was about the money, but that was never any uh, any near motivation for this killing, which makes it that much more freaky. You know, like it, that, mm-hmm. that's that, that's always the thing. Like you can understand if somebody gets killed to shut them up, or if somebody gets killed because they cross somebody. But when a killing is random and it's not about profit, it's it's strictly about as it's strictly about keeping a secret that you know at this point was being pretty well kept. That's really really eerie, and so that's the reason why that that newspaper is always in frame. I think there's even just like a little bit of light on it just to remind you. Mm-hmm. But that that was that it's it's very very. There's nothing that happens in a Hitchcock film by accident. So right. that was you know definitely deliberate that he wanted to remind you. Nope, money's still there. And yeah, I thought he, that was great. And then on top of that, in the next scene, whenever he comes back to clean up, yep, the newspaper is not <laughs> visible. Until he, um, until the very end, whenever he scoops takes one up. last look around and scoops it up. Yeah, without the money falling out. So he still has no clue. Right. 
and goes uh, and dumps the car into what almost looks like a tar pit in the backyard. Yeah, yeah. handy that little tar pit in the back of a motel. <laughs> yeah, although I guess they they technically call it a swamp, but uh, yeah. in black and white, it definitely looks like a tar pit. Yeah, what some, something that a that a brand new car would disappear into without a trace. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, like, like now, you know, even if this film didn't necessarily scare you because it's it, you know, it's a very very different kind of film now. Like, did did like you found it enjoyable at least? Yeah, I I did enjoy it. Um, you're right. It, it's it's really kind of beyond the scares. Although I do think that the tension is still. Still pretty cool, huh? Um, yeah, it's still present throughout the film, especially in in the first act. Um, and and of course the the score is a huge part of that. Well, they sort of double down on the tension when Arbogast has to go to the motel and to the house to look around. Like that, I find is when most modern uh, anytime i've shown this to any friends or anytime i've talked to somebody about it for the first time usually it's the arbogast stuff that tends to catch them the most like his killing and his scenes with norman and the way he's walking around because that first act is known to death and even the ultimate payoff is pretty well known but that second and third act is the part where a lot of people don't know the details so seeing Arbogast get killed and seeing how he kind of walks into that situation is where a lot of people really, really uh, fall headlong into the tension. Yeah, um, but I, I mean, even before the, even before she gets to the hotel, uh, I think it, it plays some really good tension with the police officer. Oh yeah, um, and and the used car scene. I I thought that that was a really great scene, and and again because I wasn't really. Uh, I didn't really know anything about the first act uh, except for the shower scene. I I thought that was really handled brilliantly. Yep, yep. With him just kind of uh, making a U-turn and just parking on the the other side of the street and just casually leaning there against the side of her car, against the side of his car while she keeps looking over at him. Yeah, it's it's cool because sometimes that's all you need, right? Is just the the visual presence of somebody that will make you uneasy. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, that that second act with with Arbogast, the the private investigator, and that is that, and the third act whenever uh, Samuel Loomis comes in and and starts asking around as well. Um, but Anthony Perkins really deserves all the credit for this. Just the way that he starts getting twitchier uh, as people get closer to the truth. It's the funniest thing because, again, like like as I said, he's the kind of guy you would expect to be serving you breakfast on Sunday morning at the cafe. He's the kind of guy you would expect to be checking out your library books. He's not the kind of dude you expect to be slashing random strangers, dressing in his mother's clothes, and having conversations with himself as a complete psychotic. And that was the real shock for a lot of America coming out of this movie in 1960, is they were used to the scary boogeyman they were used to lon cheney as the as the wolfman they were used to bella lugosi as dracula they weren't used to a guy with a collared shirt and a black sweater being capable of this kind of violence and you're right he owns it it's 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 amazing to see him do this and 
for me, the you know, not to not to jump ahead too far, but for me, the key to this whole movie has always been the finale when he's talking just in his own head um, as mother, saying mm-hmm. how passive he's going to be and how he won't give them anything and he won't hurt a fly. And the last shot of this movie is him looking up with a, a look on his face that just cuts right through you. And it's incredible that all of this emotion and all of this range is in this one very, very clean cut, nice looking dude. Mm-hmm. And and that shot is something that uh, I'm I'm sure that if you've seen anything else from this film, you've seen that shot of him. Yeah. Because the 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 two things, the two most iconic things about this film are the the Janet Lee shower scene and the uh, the shot of him at the end. Uh, although I will say that uh, I did think that the scene with the um, the psychologist, oh yeah, was it was the most dated about this and, and kind of slowed things down a bit. Uh, how? Um, just I don't know. Just the explanation just kind of went on too See, long. You know what though? Like it, it's kind of funny because it's actually when um you know th- this had to come up at some point when Gus Van Sant tried to remake this film in 1998 um that was actually one of the scenes that gave him the most trouble because the actor who he had playing the psychologist couldn't get that explanation off in time. They kept he kept telling him you got to get through it faster. You got to get through it faster. This is lagging. This is lagging. This is lagging. And the first time you see that, yeah, it seems like a great big info dump just to catch up everybody and tie a bow on it. But one, it like, you know, the more you watch it, the more you find out that it's actually very eloquently spoken, quickly spoken and dropped that ties off any questions. The other thing we got to remind ourselves that, you know, I hate to kind of keep coming back to this, but at 19, in 1960, this all would have seemed really weird. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't just do the Friday, the 13th or, uh, you know, Halloween ending where the boogeyman is killed and everybody just walks off into the sunrise. We really needed to take a breath and talk about what we'd just seen. And that was why he needed to fill everybody in. Not to mention, you know, there were so many questions, not the least of which what happened to the money. So it's funny. The first time you see it, yeah, it's going to seem really long, really, really tedious. But the truth is that it actually goes, I, like, the scene is not very long. I think he's talking for a grand total of about three minutes. And he gets out a lot of information at a really good pace. Yeah, that that's surprising. It does feel like quite a bit longer on on the first watch because uh, I think the biggest thing is that um, at this point in time you do kind of know most of what he's telling you. You do, um, but again, the idea of how Norman got to this point, we we still don't really know. Like we we filled in some of the holes. But when he explains that Norman had a full break when his mother took a lover and that Norman for a while was two people, but really now is only one person and that, you know, Norman could basically go and retreat into mother whenever he felt stress and mother would just take over. First of all, again, in 1960, that would have been mind blowing. We, we wouldn't have had nearly the information that we have now, um, so so for starters, but also just to really, really 
underscore all of that because otherwise all you've got is a guy who looks normal who dresses in his mom's clothes and happens to kill random strangers i really feel like you needed to take a minute with that before we really move on otherwise it would have just felt like too much of a shock to the system yeah i i can kind of see that taking a look at it from a 1960 perspective i i I still think that i I kind of appreciate the the movies that kind of let you let you connect the dots on your own yeah um it's it's strange because there's you know there's sometimes where i want the boogeyman just to be a person who as the dark knight says wants to see the world burn there's other times where i want to get into the mindset of of the killer and i need a little bit of help with that i you know as much as i think this movie could have ended with uh you know with lila crane and uh and loomis driving off and saying so that was messed up huh (laughs) Uh, i i I actually think that having somebody tie a bow on it works a little bit better and just and having everybody there like because that's the thing the sheriff is there at the time and his wife is there at the time like the last gathering of everybody you know is there really really just kind of parsing this out um and and giving us a breath but you're right there is a place for people who just want to mess us up i i just i don't know that this was the place Mm -hmm. and and i do like the fact that um that it does end with the shot of them dredging up the car yeah again hey that money that you thought about it's still there (laughs) although it's uh i'm sure it's going to be slightly water damaged but it's still uh, good (laughs) <laughs> you know, money, money's pretty waterproof. Uh, the one thing I might suggest one time, if you're ever <laughs> laugh at this, if you will, if you're ever bored and looking for something to do, um, Steven Soderbergh a year ago put together something pretty cool on his site, which I think is extension758.com or something like that. If you just Google um, Steven Soderbergh site, you'll you'll come up with it. He put together a film he calls Psycho with an s where he actually uh stitched together the 1960 original and the 1998 remake with gus van sant in a way that really plays on that paranoia with uh janet lee and so there's sometimes where somebody would be driving down the street and when the camera is supposed to turn and look at them from another angle it looks at the modern version or that kind of thing and it's it's all in black and white so that actually really helps because I find that one of the biggest problems with the remake is the fact that they jumped to color. Um, and it's a really, really fascinating marriage of the original and the remake. And it's on his site, and you can watch it for free. Yeah, and, and one thing that uh, that I was kind of disappointed of, this this is a little bit of a tangent, but on, uh, I think it's uh, Vudu, um, the, the streaming site where you yep. um, get all your digital codes. And they, they had a one of their... I think it was one of their like extension programs, or maybe them itself offered you ten free random movies whenever you signed up. And uh, I think somebody where I had heard about it, the the blogger that uh, did it, one of the mov- one of those ten movies was the original Psycho. So um, I signed up for it. And, uh, partly because of that, you got the remake, didn't you? And I, and out of the <laughs> ten movies, I got the, the remake. Yeah, as one of the ten frees. I, I thought that was kind of funny. I, I, I may watch it at some point just because I, I do own own it <laughs> in digital form, um, just out of curiosity. Even though I do understand the fact that it is 
very much not the sum of its parts. It's, you know, like, the remake... I actually saw the remake in theaters. Uh, it was around the time I was first getting into film. Um, they they did some interesting things. They they took a lot of these things that we're complaining about and took them a little bit further. Like they they played up Norman's peeping Tom uh, tendencies. We got a little bit more skin and a little bit more blood. And of course, the blood in that one is red. It's not black and white. Mm. And it, you know, it's kind of funny because for as much as people complain about what we don't see in old movies and how I do know people that are, find it hard to extrapolate black and white and, and deal with that, it didn't do that much better by doing these things, by showing more nudity or showing color. And, you know, it's it's really, really interesting to see how sometimes you really can't muck with a classic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and although I, I will say that I think if I do watch it, uh, it will be uh, entertaining because uh, as I'm I'm a fan of Kevin Smith's podcasts uh, on one of the, the ones that he does, Hollywood Babylon, uh, in the early days of that, so they he would often talk about how in that version of the shower scene, <laughs> you can actually see... Uh, uh, Anne Heche's butthole, and like Jeez. that became a running joke through. Uh, Kevin weeks. Smith. Yeah, they yeah. they even turned it into like this uh, this almost kid song. Good grief! <laughs> yeah, I, 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 yeah. I get the time. I'm gonna drop it in right here. Let's all go inside. Yeah, I I can see that. No, I'd say, you know, if anybody really wants to do further psycho reading, um, either go on to the Steven Soderbergh cut of the two movies or while I wasn't hugely a fan of it, it does have its place. Watch the Anthony Hitchcock film. uh, Sorry, the Anthony Hopkins film Hitch. Um, Is it called Hitch or is it called Hitchcock? Hitchcock. Hitch is the the one with Will Smith. Smith. (laughs) Yeah, no, sorry. Watch Hitchcock because it's not it's not a great film, but it is all centered on the making of Psycho. And it's really kind of cool to see, uh, you know, an interpretation of how it was all brought together and what was really going on. And, you know, not the least of which was Hitchcock's wife's. Uh, involvement um, because she did actually play quite a great part in in his filmmaking and in his career and and their uh, relationship is pretty central so no avoid avoid Kevin Smith's podcast for <laughs> God uh, avoid the 90, the 98 remake but do check out psychos or Hitchcock all right well I think that that covers Hitchcock's psycho. Uh, we are going to take a quick break, and then whenever we come back, we're going to talk about a much lesser film, a <laughs> much lesser than even Gus Van Sant's Psycho, yeah. The Spirit. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. You are about to witness history in the making. Hi there, this is Todd from Forgotten Films, and if you spend all your time watching new releases, then you need to broaden your movie horizons. And a great way to do that is by joining me for the Forgotten Filmcast. We don't talk about the new releases, we don't even talk about the classics. We talk about the movies that time forgot. On each episode, I'm joined by another film blogger to discuss a film that may or may not be worth rediscovering. 
So look for the Forgotten Filmcast on iTunes, Podomatic, and wherever you find great podcasts. So The Spirit came out in 2008, a few years after Frank Miller got a co-directing credit for Sin City uh, with Robert Rodriguez, and he decided that he would take that similar style to a Will Eisner comic called The Spirit. But while it did have a vaguely similar visuals to it, uh, to Sin City, it had a much more live-action Looney Tunes tone to it. And rather than stick to a specific comic book story like they did with Sin City, he changed many aspects of the story and the characters. And the result is really a bit of a mess with a confusing structure. A bit of a mess? <laughs> yeah. Ridiculous and very repetitive dialogue and an uneven tone. And many people call this one of the worst comic book movies ever made. And well, while okay, I do let's, have it, hold on. let's not get ahead of ourselves there. This is terrible. This is terrible with a capital T. <laughs> but there are some pretty real, like, there are some god awful comic book movies out there. Um, but uh, yeah, let, let's not get too high in hyperbole here. Because at the <laughs> very least, like the one thing you could say for this movie, and probably the only thing you could say for this movie, is it's handsome. Yeah. Okay, that's it. After after that, it's all a mess. But at the very least, it's technically capable. Yes, it it, it is still visually interesting for a lot of it. It's it's not quite Sin City level uh, pretty, but uh, it it gets close in several in several points. The funny thing for me is that this is a movie that okay. So first of all, let's back up a step here and remind ourselves that. Miller decided that he wanted to direct this by himself. Um, near as I can tell, he does not really do that. <laughs> he, you know, he's he's a comic book guy, and God bless him for his talent. He's done a lot of cool things for the medium, um, but he is not a director who can work without training wheels. Um, and and to that, I say that. He's not a director that can work by himself. He obviously can co-direct, as we saw with uh, with Sin City. Well, but... And there's also, a, I'm sure, a big question of how much input he actually did have in Sin City other than uh, I feel like a lot of the co-directing credit was just because they basically used the comic book as storyboards. Maybe. And he, and he was on set, so I'm sure he yeah. had some creative input, but I, I feel like it was probably 90% Robert Rodriguez and 10% Frank Miller, but of course... We'll never know. Well, see, the funny thing about this is both Sin City and The Spirit are very, very, very stylistic. And there's a lot of effort that needs to go into that in the in the pre-production stage. And at a certain point, somebody who's doing visual styling and pre-production to that extent kind of crosses over a line and becomes something altogether different. I don't think it's a fluke that his only three directing credits are on the three comics that he himself did, on the two Sin Cities and The Spirit, um, despite him you know, writing all sorts of others and having other comics or other movies based on his work. But the look of these three movies, of, of the Two Sin Cities and The Spirit, is pretty distinct and pretty unique. And I feel like he, while he may not have been doing things like blocking and, uh, you know, going for tone and that kind of thing, he was certainly responsible for a lot of the look. Unfortunately, there's more to directing a movie than getting the look right. <laughs> so 
I, I, that's the thing. I think that it's not just a matter of him being on set and saying, yeah, long black coat or yeah, bigger gun or that kind of thing. Like it, it had a lot to do with, uh, you know, or just going off of his storyboards because that again is just a different type of adapting. I really, really think that he was involved somehow. How exactly it's kind of hard to articulate, but clearly he needs somebody else to be working with him. Yeah, and and watching it again, I think even in the first five minutes of this film, I it felt like it was worse than I remembered. It, oh man, he, yeah. he's got he's we've got the spirit going on the along the rooftops and like jumping uh, along some power lines, and just the way that he's moving is so cartoonish and unrealistic that it's laughable. Well, I can see the funny thing is I could roll with that, but the movie doesn't want to roll with that. And, and, you know, on the one hand, you have every single actress in this movie playing various versions of femme fatales, but, and, and none of them approaching that cartoony level that we see the spirit moving in. The only thing that we see approaching that cartoony level is the thing that exceeds that cartoony level, <laughs> which is the octopus as yes. played by, by Samuel L. Jackson. You know, it's like, it's, it's almost as if none of the characters in this story know the other characters are also in this story. It, it's, it's as if we wa- we're watching the intersection of at least four different comic books happen at the one time. The, the closest thing that I can articulate that this reminds me of is Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where we see all the cartoon characters come together in the one world at the same time, <laughs> you know, independent of what another and that's the only thing i can compare this to it this is a glorious mess um that that is that almost has to be seen to be believed yeah i i mean here here's one like one example of the dialogue which i think the dialogue is really one of the worst aspects of this film uh where the spirit says uh, the octopus knows something and the commissioner says how do you know and he says he told me he knows something <laughs> oh man see it's like the funny thing is the i feel like this material in the right hands probably could have gone somewhere you know i i like lord knows i would love to see what somebody like joss whedon could have done with this <laughs> and, and i'm also surprised that they went the whole movie with a character named sans serif and they never made a font joke yeah really um i i yeah i i don't know like this is one of these movies where I wonder how it got that far down the rabbit hole. Like this was not a cheap movie. This is not something that was done in 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 a week. It cost it cost Lionsgate sixty million dollars to make this movie. That is not a small piece of change. You know they would have been lucky if this film film had have made sixty million dollars. Of course it didn't. Um, and I don't know how it got to this point where. <laughs> You know, where, where nobody raised a hand and said, uh, excuse me, really? <laughs> this is what we're going with? I, yeah, I, I, I don't get it. I, I think it's funny. Like, I, I didn't specifically watch this with, uh, like, sit my uh, eight-year-old daughter down and say, here, watch this with me. But since it is rated PG-13, I didn't, like, shut it off whenever she walked in the room. And she even came in and, and was watching a little bit of it, and she said that this movie is, quote, way too stupid. Yeah. And, yeah, she my, my, had, yeah. and the, the funniest thing that, that I have to share, like, she 
was in the room during the the part where uh, the octopus basically melts the cat. <laughs> and after that happened, and, and you see like the two eyeballs in the ball, she literally turned the movie off and shut the TV off and walked out. That is a smart room. child. That is a brilliant child. <laughs> my my wife was listening to this from the other room, and just every fifteen minutes, she said, "That sounds like the worst thing I have ever seen." And she like she wasn't even laying eyes on it; she was just listening to it. And that I think is the ultimate mark on this movie is if you don't have those pretty pictures to distract you (laughs) you know absurd as they may be if you are just if you were to just close your eyes and listen this movie gets spectacularly dumb (laughs) yes absolutely and but it it has just it's set in a weird world where it's it's very it's trying to be very noir. It feels very 20s in like the style of the dialogue, the style of the clothing, and yet it's this world where they have these high-tech like jet helicopters and everybody's carrying mobile phones. Well, you know, it's kind of funny cuz you mentioned the style of the movie, but it's it's kind of there's a lot of moments where the movie abandons that style and I kind of wonder what the hell happened. Like for instance, What's with the octopus wearing that giant sombrero half the time? I, that, that was the thing. I, I was like, okay, he kind of looks kind of kind of cool. And then all of a sudden he shows up and, and he's dressed like Pancho Villa. And I'm like, what is happening here? Not to mention, why are all his henchmen wearing T-shirts? Yeah, that, I think that was a very Looney Tunes, live action Looney Tunes aspect. Like I could see those being like the, um, oh, what's the the uh, Bugs Bunny cartoon where he's on the baseball team with all the... Yeah, yeah. It's a Huey, Dewey, and Louie kind of thing, but at the same time, just like, you know, one, they're wearing t-shirts. So, like, if they had had their names on their on coats, if they were wearing long black coats and their names were on their chest, that's a very, very different thing than them wearing t-shirts with white letters across them. T-shirts with white letters makes me think of bouncers outside a nightclub. Not, you know, goons in a 1920 noir. That's number one. Like uh, Batman 66 villains. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The other thing, again, is why their names? Why are we seeing it's all, you know, logos and pathos and ethos and bulbos? Actually, pathos, I thought was pretty clever. One of them is named huevos, another one rancheros, <laughs> mangos, adidos, amigos. Like, it's it, at a certain point, it's like somebody just had way too much fun doing this. And and as funny as that is, it would have been funnier just to hear them say it and just do something like put a number there. Don't even give – I don't want to see a guy, a goon named Huevos. Uh, you know, give him a coat. Give him a number. You'll probably eliminate that problem and make just elevate it just that little bit. You've still got 17,000 other problems, but that won't be one. Right, and and that would even that would even further the connection to like the Batman '66 movie where, where uh, penguins thugs or all had numbers like Thug One, Thug yeah. Two. Yep, you know, yeah. You know, there's no difference really between logos, pathos, ethos, bulbos, and and all of them. So don't even bother. Just mean you know they're they're all red shirts. Just give them a number so we know which one's gone. And away you go. And especially since they are all played by the same actor. For yeah. anybody who hasn't actually seen the trailers for the movie. And I don't know. I, that is one of the, the humors. that and, and humor is always subjective. And, and I know a lot of people complain about the humor in this movie. But 
that's one of the ones that that hits me the right way. I, I do kind of like the henchmen, uh, and they're just complete uh, stupid humor. Yeah, like the stupid humor is is funny. I just you know you kind of have to get past the naming thing, and, and they're and especially their eternal optimism. I, I think that yeah. that what that's what really helps. Like no matter what happens, they're yeah extremely they're, they're stupid still... and extremely happy and optimistic. Yeah, it's you know it's one of those things where it kind of betrays the tone of this movie. Like I, that's my other question is I don't know what this movie was going for because there's times where you almost feel like it's deliberately going campy, but it never commits to that. And there's other times where you think it's deliberately going noirish, but there's all kinds of the there's the, all these glaring omissions of it being noirish. It's just this giant cobweb of weird and none of it works. The right. funny thing is that, you know, again, at the very least, it's pretty. That was really the <laughs> only reason why I could think to marry it up with Psycho is because I like I like comics that work in, uh, you know, pen and ink, in black and white. The, the, that comic that I mentioned earlier, Black Hole, it's all in black and white. Um, a Road to Perdition is all in black and white. And uh, History of Violence, black and white. I think it's a really, really wonderful artistic choice in in comic books and graphic novels. And I think it's one that, aside from the two Sin City films, has not been explored enough. And I don't really know why. I kind of feel like modern directors are gun-shy when it comes to black and white because they feel like they're leaving money on the table. Meanwhile, you get a film like The Spirit, which, don't get me wrong, this film is... In color to an extent, but it's all very, very muted except for red. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I feel like it was the one that decided it wanted to try being in black and white. So I, that was my real reach for, for this film because it was the only one of the three black and white. Well, I haven't seen the second Sin City, but <laughs> I, I didn't really want yeah, to go down that road. But it's, it's you pretty know, it, on par. It's better than The Spirit, but it's not, not by a city. wide okay. margin. Yeah. Gotcha. So, you know, that, that was my main reason for it was, was wanting to look at monochrome in film. I'm a guy who, who likes black and white photography quite a great deal. And I thought that this might have, you know, some value in that respect. I could not have been more wrong, (laughs) (laughs) but it was, you know, it was worth a look. Yeah. And, and I'm always like, um, I always enjoy, to a certain extent, watching these quote-unquote bad movies, because no matter how bad it is, there there's always something to, to grasp onto, even if it's just the humor of how bad it is. And I think that's one reason why I do kind of latch on to some of the humor bits that, that happen here and there, just because there's not much else to grasp onto. No, see, that's the thing. That's where I start to get pissed off because I start to think about what else I could be watching <laughs> and what else I could be doing. And I'm all, you know, like if you if you really, really, you know, frame it for me as we're going to go get loaded and watch The Room, then, you know, OK, maybe, you know, like, I, all right, do I have anything else I got to do? No. Nah, OK, what the hell? Let's go get Blitz and watch The Room. But when I watch something and I think there's going to be some virtue in it and I just com- completely have my time and energy wasted, then I'm kind of pissed. Yeah, and it, this this comes pretty close. Um, well, yeah. And I know there there's just so many weird aspects. Like I, I think one of the things that could have worked a lot stronger than it does – is the the relationship between Denny and uh, Sans Serif? 
uh, how they knew each other as kids. But it's it's like that's just such a dramatic wasteland. Uh, and and the the one the one positive I think uh, it does have going for it is it's kind of fun to see uh, a young the young spear is. Uh, a couple years later, goes on to play young Neil in uh, Scott Pilgrim. Yeah, that was a nice little. Well, you know, and of course you have. This is where you have um, the uh, the Black Widow and and Nick Fury doing their thing. <laughs> Every, like that, that's kind of funny thing is the more years go by, the more actors become comic book characters. So <laughs> you know, and, and inevitably all of them are going to be a comic book character of some sort. So when you start seeing them in other projects. It becomes really, really funny. It's it's one of the reasons why I smile now if I happen to be thinking about or notice um, American Hustle because I was like, oh, here's that movie <laughs> with Batman, Rocket Raccoon, Mystique, Hawkeye, and Lois Lane all getting together. You know, it's this weird little crossover. Yeah, so, and you can do that with almost any movie oh, coming tons out. Tons <laughs> now, tons of them now. Um, we, you know, the funny thing about this movie as well is. We haven't really talked about Gabriel Macht as the spirit. And if you're wondering why we haven't talked about Gabriel Macht, it's because there's really not a lot to talk about when it comes to Gabriel Macht. I know that the guy's got his fans with this show that he's on Suits. Yeah. But I could not think of a more bland actor to drape your movie on than, than, than this dude. There is nothing about him in this movie that cries to me man of mystery or you know certainly not misunderstood hero or valiant like nothing this has got to be one of the most boring actors to ever head a comic book property ever yeah and and his character doesn't really help things either cuz they're i mean it's it's played so weird like his fights with the the octopus are so uh, live action Looney Tunes where he's like just plays this dumb brute where he's like just keeps coming back for more even though they're destined to always end in a stalemate or for the octopus to get the upper hand long enough for him to escape. Sure. But like let me give you a comparison as a for instance and, and using another film that I think is a mess um, as a comparison. The um, from a few years ago, from like uh, four years ago now, the Green Hornet movie with Seth Rogen. Mm-hmm. Okay, bad movie, uh, really messy. I don't know what the hell Michael Gondry was thinking when he made that movie, and I'm sure you know that that's a, that's a fun discussion for another time. But at the very <laughs> yeah. least, in this bad movie, you have Christoph Waltz as a really interesting villain. You know, yeah. even though he, the character isn't all that interesting, but Christoph Waltz is like incapable of delivering an uninteresting part. Yeah, and, and also, he was he was my favorite part of that movie before I knew even knew who Christopher Waltz is yeah, or Christoph yeah. Waltz. Yeah, number one, and then seeing Jay Chu as Cato was also really cool and really well done, and you know really did a lot of cool things to save this terrible movie. Even though the rest of it is a glorious mess, there is nothing like that. Like either one of those two performances in the spirit certainly not out of the main guy the movie is called the spirit if anything you need to give me something about the this character to give a shit about it's so funny that we've entered a, an era where the villains are more interesting than the heroes you know uh, and and if you if you doubt that just look at 
mo- the, the big critique of most of the Marvel movies is the villains don't really matter. Um, right. You know, out, outside of Loki, there they have a capital V villain problem. But in this case, we've got a weird villain, certainly probably the <laughs> most memorable part of this clusterfuck. Yeah, and the interesting thing that that I do know about it is in the Spirit comic books, the the octopus was always. Um, he was this master of disguise, and I believe in the comics you either never saw his face or you never saw his true face. Uh, well, you know, where if he's wearing sombreros like that, how would you ever spot him? <laughs> um, but yeah, just to finish my thought is we don't re- – well, we, we have a weird villain problem in that the, the villain is just an oddball. But more than anything else, we have a hero problem in that we don't give a crap about this actor or this character. It's the strangest thing about this movie is that we really don't give a shit. Right. I mean, we we get a little bit of his backstory with Sans Serif and, and him as kids, but that, that doesn't really amount to anything except this kiss. Yeah. And you get the fact that he's just this this habitual womanizer. Like, he's practically a nymphomaniac, the, the way he apparently can't help it. Yeah. Um, and that actually is a negative on his character because he just jumps from woman to woman uh, when they're standing right right there still. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, um, you know, I, I'm dumber for having seen it. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, as I said, like I, I've always said, I can't comment on a movie or knock a movie until I've seen it. I can just shrug my shoulders and say it's not for me. This I can shred because, <laughs> uh, you know, everything about it was just so damn weird. Yeah, and... I don't know, and the the one good thing that I'll have that I'll have to say is, uh, whenever I was watching it, uh, and this is only the second time that I've seen it, and will probably be the last. Uh, It'll be the last for me, that's for damn sure. But I I did enjoy just kind of ripping into it on, on Twitter and just pointing out, uh, just live tweeting it. Um, that was a lot of fun, and just the the reaction my daughter had with it kind of made this this viewing of the movie for me i I, i'm happy that one of us got something out of this (laughs) especially since it was my choice right and i i am kind of disappointed that um the the next time that the one biggest problem i do have with with this show as a concept is not only is there a lot fewer good uh, superhero and comic book movies out there but there's a um a much smaller chance of uh, a guest coming on who hasn't seen all of the good ones that I have that I haven't already covered. That's you know that of course is the trick because you know when I when I was first looking down the list like I think my first knee jerk reaction was uh, was a history of violence and take a drink every time I've mentioned that on this show. <laughs> uh, but when I remembered that you wanted it to be one I haven't seen. Uh, where it comes to the comic book genre, which we're really and truly only 50, we're 15 years into this new version of it. And then anything before that, you're taking your life into your hands. If you're watching anything from the last <laughs> century where comic book movies are concerned, um, most of what's dropped this century is stuff I've already seen. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I knew I was going to have to take a bullet. And uh, yeah, this is this one's going to leave a mark. Yeah, I, I think there are still some some good ones out there and some older ones. Uh, I know another one that's that's a bit of an obscure one, but I've heard good things about it. It's called Where the Wind Blows. 
I have not even heard of that, so maybe I should look into that one. Yeah, it's it's this animated uh, film from the '80s, I believe, and, and it's um, it's kind of like a different version of um, oh, what was that that recent one um, uh, about the nuclear winter with oh. I think Shailene Woodley or uh, uh, the, yeah, the the blizzard and the bird and oh shoot, I've got it. It's it's in my Netflix my list. I, I know the one you're talking about, but I can't remember what that gets called right now. Yeah, I, I think it's similar to that, where it's this like uh, elderly couple that um, that they they live in the country, and uh, this uh, nuclear strike goes off, and then they're kind of uh, dealing with this nuclear winter based on um, the information they have from this propaganda pamphlet. And it's uh, it's really sad because it's like they do kind of uh, it, it doesn't have a happy ending <laughs> to put it oh, one way. Um, but again, I haven't seen it, but I've heard good things. Uh, yeah, you know, like I'm a little bit scared in in the genre at the moment, which is kind of funny because uh, you know, on on the whole, like you mentioned television earlier, like a lot of what I'm watching on television right now is comic book based, and is a lot of what I'm really enjoying. But when it comes to the movies, I'm all of a sudden very very skittish. Yeah, and but by and large, I, I think that most of them are getting better. Like I'm, I'm really excited for Age of Ultron. Um, I, you know what? As, as a as a DC guy, I'm just really curious to see what they're gonna do. Uh, they, they've got really big plans, and they've they're several laps behind when it comes to what Marvel has been doing. Uh, they're really, really ambitious in terms of what they're planning, uh, and and just in terms of a a fan of movies, I just want to see with what in the world they are going to do with all this time they've had to observe and plan and lay things out. I do not expect a whole lot, um, but I am really, really curious. On the flip side of things, where where Marvel is concerned. I'm really curious to see how long they can keep this going. You know, they've pretty much been on a winning streak ever since they started this whole project in 2008. But eventually, something's got to give. And, you know, is it Ant-Man? Is it is it Doctor Strange? Is it when is it going to when is the bottom finally going to fall out and they actually have a miss on their hands because anything that misses for them is going to have huge repercussions for what else they have in the pipeline right and uh, it it, although right now it's like them and pixar are pretty much the only two studios that have not had a miss i mean pixar has had critical misses but they have not had a box office miss yet no no exactly and and that's the thing like when you when you say you know even when you say that they haven't had a box office miss like they've had one that's lower for them like lest we forget Thor 1 and Captain America, the first Avenger, didn't exactly set the world on fire in terms of their box office, um, but they still made a lot of money. And same thing with Pixar. Their, their, their so-called misses still made a really decent amount of money just because it's what they do. But that's going to give at some point when, when, when it comes to Marvel. And, you know, who knows? DC might not even get that far despite what they want to do. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's tough to say where things will go in the future, but uh, that's a topic for another day. Um, but I've I'm glad to have you back on um, for the fiftieth episode. I, I kind of 
wish you would have been able to find a, a better film than The Spirit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but uh, hopefully next time uh, I have you on, the, you'll have uh, um, maybe something out there that, that you find that, that turns out to be a, a hidden gem. Uh, so there's there's always hope for that. But why don't you go ahead and remind everybody where they can find you online. Uh, they can find me thebatnay.ca. Uh, if you go, if you want to follow the podcast, there's either uh, handy buttons in the sidebar, or you can search for my name, Ryan McNeil, M C N E I L, in the iTunes store. Uh, and if you want to find me on Twitter, I am at matinee underscore ca. And as always, I am Bubba Wheat, and you can find me at flightstightsandmovienights.com. You can find me at channelsuperhero.com. You can find me on Twitter at Bubba Wheat. And uh, I was about to say if you want to know what two films we'll be talking about next time, but uh, I don't know what or when that will be, so I will probably toss in just a random mashup trailer of uh, of a couple films uh, that I have made in the past, um, because hopefully people enjoy those. I, I know I enjoy making them. So until next time, whenever that may be. When do we start? We just did. Bing! Bing! He's a ghost. You'll never find him. Fast. Strong. Out of metal arm. I have been stabbed, shot, burned, frozen, electrocuted. The price of freedom is high. And it's a price I'm willing to pay. Okay.